As we continue our series on Acts, let's uh, start, uh, as I think I did a few weeks ago, the little bit of ancient history, shall we? Not too much today, some yeses, some a re- little bit of reservation. But anyway, uh, transport yourself back, if you will, to AD 303. And in AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian decided in time on a tradition uh, to pick on some Christians. Um, it had been a policy the Roman Empire had tried for hundreds of years, ever since Christianity had come around, really. Nero and uh, Domitian in the first century, brutally persecuting Christians to kind of get the empire to toe the line with the pagan traditions of, of how the Roman Empire had always been, uh, always been run. And Diocletian tried to do the same in 303. But for the first time in Roman history, he came across a significant problem. And that problem was very simple. There were simply too many Christians in the Roman Empire to be able to do this uh, with any effectiveness. As one historian puts it, uh, by the year 300, Christianity had become too widely accepted in Roman society to make possible a successful persecution on the part of the government. So Diocletian's persecution was almost completely ineffective. In some areas, they didn't even bother with it because it wasn't going to work. Okay? About 80 years later, in 380 AD, uh, things had gone a little step further as Emperor Theodosius uh, issued the, the Edict of Thessalonica, which effectively made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, um, just so you know, the next figure I'm going to give you is not from uh, some quite optimistic Christian academics. This would be consensus of historians and sociologists, was that at the time of 380 AD, there would have been over 30 million Christians already in the Roman Empire, which some have said, and again, not optimistic Christian <laughs> historians, but some, uh, as regards in the academic community, and this would be quite a widespread view, would be that that is more than half of the people in the Roman Empire at that time. Just, just think about that for a second. Over 50%, or it's, it's going to be between 45 and 50%, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, people in the Roman Empire, within 350 years of Jesus' death, uh, would call themselves Christians. That's why the Roman Empire uh, changed as it did. I think with figures like that, you can see that it's certainly not exaggeration uh, what Jonathan did at the beginning of this series, where he said that Jesus started a revolution. He really did start a revolution. And what we see in the book of Acts, which is what we're looking at at the moment, is really how that revolution began. Um, Now, we would live at a time now in the world where the revolution is gathering pace still. A remarkable fact, 2,000 years after uh, the life of Jesus. uh, More people are becoming Christians today than any other point in history. Um, So the revolution is is well and truly uh, still moving. However, for us living in England, I'm sure even if you know the history and even if you know widespread stories of Christianity in China and South America and Africa and here and here and here, and the the kind of thing I've said, you know, yes, I I know that's the fact. I've read books and that and all of that. It is quite hard for us to feel this stuff in our spirits. I I don't know whether you understand uh, where I'm coming from, but you know it in your head, but you think, yeah, but. And the simple reason for that is, in our part of the world, we are an exception to the rule rather than the rule. In England and and in Europe as a whole, uh, we would have seen an opposite story given to us uh, of Christianity on the retreat, of less people becoming Christians, more people moving away from the faith. And so... Although we're still moving on in a revolution that's kept going, I think for many of us, our hope, we probably put our hope more like this. We'd like to see something of a new revolution, a new Jesus revolution in our culture uh, in our day and age. Not really new, but that's the kind of way a lot of us would be praying for our city and for our nation. Is that kind of roughly right? Yeah. Owen is. Good. I'll speak to you. Dude, no, seriously. 
Do, do we want to see that? Do you want to see a change in our society? Yeah, okay, just checking. Um, <laughs> um, now, I think then, uh, when, when we come to the book of Acts, then it's incredibly important for us. Because if the good news of Jesus can do this stuff then, overthrowing the entire Roman Empire within 350 years, it's certainly able to bring widespread joy, peace, and hope again in 21st century Britain. Do we believe that? Yes, okay. Oh, and Anna and, and a few others. Come on. <laughs> um, so far, what we've done in the book of Acts, we're only on chapter 3. We're going to be in the beginning of chapter 3 today if you've got a Bible. We've looked at the foundations of that revolution. Uh, a number of things that we've said, look, this is, seems to be what the revolution was built on. And so far, I think if I'm right, we've seen kind of three main things. We've seen conviction, deep conviction in the disciples. The revolution is built on that. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, the filling of the Spirit, like we saw at Pentecost. The revolution was built on that. Also, on community. I think Jonathan would have spoken on this last week. Again, this is a genuine question, I think. Yes, good. Okay, see, I'll, talk, I'll tease it out of you sooner or later. It's okay. <laughs> Not too many direct questions. I understand my, my limits. Okay. Um, so, and community as well. So that's a, the revolution was built on that. And I want to throw a fourth one in today, which is we see in today's passage of miracles. Okay, we see the revolution was definitely built on miraculous power. So, uh, Acts chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1, well, the, the, the plan is simple. Just as we've looked at these other things, we've said, look, as if we claim to build on these things, conviction, power of the Spirit, community, we've said, well, if we can build on these things, we can be confident then we can see the same things happen as they saw in this book. I think the same is true of what we're looking at today. So let's see uh, what we find here. This is what it says. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Here we have the first miracle, healing miracle, in the whole book of Acts. And just so you know, it certainly will not be the last, okay? So what I'd like to do today is I want to just do it, address the topic miracles, the general topic. We're going to start general. We're going to then move to the whole book of Acts. And then believe me, at some point in this sermon, I will actually look for a real verse from this actual passage. 
probably. Okay. Um, but all mainly I want to do is ask three questions. There are three questions that if this would be representative a uh, crowd of British society, which I know it's not exactly, but you know, you know what I mean. These would be the three questions I think that would be in our minds. Okay. The first question would be, did miracles like this ever happen? Some people would ask that question. Others would ask a different question. They say, do miracles like this happen today? And thirdly, and my guess would be this would be for most of us here, we'd ask a slightly more subtly different question, which was how often should we expect miracles like this to happen today? And I simply want to look through those three questions. That is the plan for the next half an hour or so. Okay, so let's crack on. Question number one, did miracles like this ever happen? Now, while I think in this room this would not be the first question we would land on, uh, in our, in our, if you went out into Bearwood uh, around the corner and did a survey, I think probably this would be the question that most would ask, and this question would be most in their head when they go to this passage, and that may well be the case uh, for you here. might be the fact you're not a Christian, you wouldn't uh, naturally come to a church meeting every week where you kind of come across stories like this, and that could be the case. But also, you could have been a Christian for a whole number of years, but still, when you come across passages like this, you cannot get this thought out of your head of... Yeah, but isn't there another way we could look at this? Maybe it's a bit more metaphorical. Crippled from birth? Could he have just had a pretty bad limp that Peter and John helped him run off in some sort of way? That's a bit silly, but like, I think most of us at some point have found the miracle stories in the Bible a little bit embarrassing because they're like, it's just not what we normally come across and it seems a little bit naive to believe things like this in the present climate as it is. Whatever camp you're in, uh, and whether that's even just something that just niggles at you every now and again, I think it's really helpful to know that there isn't a lot of wriggle room when it comes to the actual accounts themselves. If we go down the line of maybe they're not really telling us there was a miracle, but they mean something more deep and profound and spiritual, but not real. You've got a big problem with that uh, idea. And the problem is in the nature of the books themselves. If we take the main books that would have miracles in, which would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, biographies of Jesus, and Acts, which is Luke the sequel, okay? If you take those five books, those books are written in incredible detail and about historical details that make it look like these guys are trying to tell you what actually happened, at the very least. So these books, these things pass us by, I think, which we read them a lot. But it's interesting when you compare this to other ancient history, uh, the level of detail is fascinating. The dates that are all the way through it, the people, the emperors in this time of this emperor and this governor and all of this sort of stuff, right through to details of, of cultural customs that make it look like, at least like these guys are trying to tell you what really happened, okay? Actually, it's not just they're trying to tell you. We know in many cases they are telling us what really happened, in the last 2,000 years since this stuff was written, uh, through finding other historical sources and particularly archaeological evidence as well, the writers of the Gospels have become more and more credible as time's gone on as historians as they just found the things they were talking about. So as people have gone, oh yeah, the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Well, there's never such a place as that. They find the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the stone pavement where Pilate gave the speech. Oh, no, they'd never have something like that. Oh dear, we found the stone pavement. And on and on. Where places villages were next to each other even the frequency of certain names in first century Palestine has been found to be absolutely spot on with other records now therefore my question would be if these guys prove trustworthy on historical and cultural details why should we not at least hear them out in their accounts of miraculous healings now if your response to that was yeah but miracles don't happen so I'm not going to hear them out 
Now, many people, I've talked to many people who say that, you go, why don't you believe in miracles? Because miracles don't happen. Just want to, oh, we could talk much more on this, but we're not going to. I just want to make this statement. That's not really an argument as it goes. It's just restating a position that probably has become quite entrenched. My plea to you would be, at very best, I'd encourage you to approach passages like this with an open mind, okay? However, I realize that this is not where most of us are regarding uh, miracles, okay? So let's move on to the second question I raised and that some of, more of you might be considering now, which is, do miracles like this in the passage still happen today? Okay, dramatic healings of this nature. Now, there would be some Christians, definitely, and I would imagine there would definitely be Christians in this room who would have been from traditions like this, and some would probably hold on to this. Maybe in a church like ours, you might keep this a bit quiet, but still think, mm, I'm still on more side of that camp than what you th- might think, you crazy charismatic bunch over here. Uh, but the, this is the argument that would be used by many Christians uh, for this. They'd say, basically, when the church got going, it needed all the help it could get, really. And so they didn't have many of them. There was, they were a bit of a funny bunch anyway, as we know from the disciples. And so God gave them as many miracles as he possibly could just to get the whole shebang off on the road. I, I'm kind of <laughs> paraphrasing. This isn't like a quoting from a theologian or anything, uh, <laughs> as you can see. Um, and so as time went on and the church got stronger, and then crucially, when the Bible was compiled... The whole Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. Obviously, these guys, they had fragments of letters and the apostles there, but they didn't have a New Testament. Okay? Once that happened, a few hundred years later, well, God's like, hands off. You guys have got all you need to go and do the business, so I'm going to call a day on miracles. You don't need them anymore. Okay? Very kind of brief and succinct, but in, in short, that would be the kind of argument. Okay? Now, I want to be clear, I would know a number of people who'd have this view. And I would respect them. Obviously, I would respect them as human beings, as I would anyone. But I would also respect them as Christians, as those who love Jesus and love the Bible. So I'm, I'm not out to mock this view or to kind of uh, badmouth it. All I want to say, and please don't hate me for this, I just don't agree. Okay, that's, that's how I am. And I'll give two reasons, and I'm sorry, they're not very complex. If you're looking for something profound, you're not going to find it here. I'm a simple guy. I've got two simple reasons, and they're enough for me. And I wonder, unless you've got a strong reason otherwise, I, I suggest they might be enough for you. <laughs> I'd suggest. Okay, anyway, I'll tell you my reasons, my simple as they are. Firstly, this is I just don't see any suggestion in the Bible at all that miracles are going to stop at any point, which might be simple, but it's probably pretty massive. In fact, as I look at the New Testament, I see a very strong suggestion that these are a feature we will be living with of Christian life until Jesus returns. And unless someone could find a a strong argument otherwise, or a strong passage that would say something different, I'd listen to that. But unless you read a lot into certain individual verses taken in isolation, it seems that it just isn't there. Simple as it is, that would be my first reason. But even simpler, my second reason, I really am sorry for the simplicity of this. Why do I believe miracles still happen today? Well, um, it's embarrassing to even say it really. Well, I've seen miracles happen today. That's why. I remember a good number of years ago now, uh, walking into a house of a guy who's lying on his bed, uh, his wife sitting next to him, um, and I was young, I was very sceptical about what was about to happen, and also lacking in faith. But I was with someone who was much more full of faith than me, and uh, you might see my lack of faith when you hear what happened to the guy. He'd fallen off the third floor from scaffolding, he was a builder, uh, sometime before, and that day or the day before, he'd been released from hospital and sent home, and they said, the hosp- doctor said, look, we, there's nothing we can do for you, this is what you're going to have to live with to his wife, and to him, he's lying motionless on his bed. He's paralyzed, basically. I remember praying for him. I remember a few minutes later him just sitting stiffly up in the bed. Okay, I remember thinking, a bit cheeky. Didn't tell us he could do that, did he? 
<laughs> That's where I was at. <laughs> remember a few minutes later as we continued praying, him shuffling around in his bed, slipping on his slippers. I remember his wife getting him, putting his feet in them, and just slowly walking. There was no walking, leaping, and praising God here, just so you know. But he walked straight out of the room, actually. He just left the room. And I remember the look of utter bewilderment on this man's face. I remember the look of utter joy on his wife's face. I was there. It's an incredible thing. I remember being in a curry house uh, in Selly Oak about 10 years ago and seeing a, uh, I was, uh, it was an Alpha course. We were having a chat on our table probably about some big theological stuff with Greek words. I don't know what we were doing or something. Uh, but then it was a bit embarrassing. Lady in the corner. Mark, you may have been there for this one. Uh, you might have been, been responsible for interrupting our discussion. Uh, falls off her chair. She'd been being prayed for. Kind of seek us. Oh, don't look over there. Let's talk about Josephus. Okay. <laughs> uh, so she's there getting prayed for, falls off her chair. I remember uh, about a month later, that lady telling me what happened that day. And what had happened was as she was being prayed for, God completely healed her, her ovarian cancer. And she had the medical records to prove it. Uh, she would have been someone who was with us in the West for a, for a while, actually. I remember a man in the church at one of our early Sites Together events talking about a long period of depression he'd been in that he just couldn't shake. As some would know, uh, many of us would struggle with mental health difficulties at one time or another, some more long-term. And he, his was something that for a short time that was becoming more long-term. I remember him just saying, but you know what? We prayed and God broke through in a moment and I'm completely healed. And as far as I'm aware, that, that person would still be free of that today. I remember being in a room when a few of us had audible cracks as bones went back into place. We prayed for them. I remember backs being suddenly straight and legs growing before my eyes. Does God do miracles today? Do things like what happened in the book of Acts in this passage happen today? Yep, they really do. But that brings us to the next question. And I think this is the one for most of us here today would be my guess of where we're at. Fair enough. Miracles happen then. That's fine. And I know miracles do happen today and preachers have got great stories. And thanks, Johnny. But for me, how often should I expect miracles in my life today? I want to make this question as practical and measurable as I can for you. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or any sign of what you think here, but I'd, I'd like you in your mind to capture this. Okay, let's imagine a situation. Let's imagine that we as a church are living as faithfully and obedient to Jesus as we possibly could. Okay? Okay, that's it. We're doing what we're meant to be doing as a community of believers and believers in that community. In that case, what then should be our expectation of miraculous, instantaneous breakthroughs of God? What number would you put on it? We'd have, a way to, we'd have a way to test this, actually. Church Central Facebook stories a breakthrough page, okay? Hand if you're acquainted with such a thing, okay? If you're not, it's a great way. We share breakthroughs that come in. But let's ask, church about 300, would we expect then one story like this story in this passage a day if we're really living faithfully to Jesus? Would we expect one per person per day? Would we expect one every time that any of us prays for a sick person, if we're being truly faithful and obedient to Jesus. I'm not going to show your hands. I want you to think about that. Well, where, where would you put the level? Now, this is where the Bible is particularly helpful for us, because whatever you think about cessationist doctrine, we do have a Bible now, which is incredibly helpful. And we, I agree with my cessationist brothers and sisters on that one. Um, and uh, the book of Acts is very helpful on that exact question. However, we have to look at this book very, very carefully or we could be led, I think, to an unhelpful conclusion on that question. So let's ask the question then, how often did they see miracles in the book of Acts? Well, actually, it might come as a surprise to you, but I think Acts answers that question in two slightly different ways. 
Now, the first way it answers it would probably be no surprise to people because we're all well aware of this. The book of Acts would certainly paint a picture of miracles and miraculous healings in particular being reasonably regular. They would happen on a reasonably regular basis. So, for example, uh, in my NIV, in between chapter 5, verse 11 and chapter 5, verse 12, there is a subheading. Not in the original Bible, but NIV's put it there. It just says, the apostles heal many. Okay, And it talks about an occasion in Jerusalem where exactly that happens. Now that subheading, while not in the original Greek of the New Testament, could in a way be put over the whole book of Acts, the apostles heal many. It could be like the subheading, you know, like an underworld insurrection, Acts, the apostle heals many. I don't know why I thought of that. Is anyone's guess? But anyway... Um, and, and in many passages, it is put there. So you don't just get Jerusalem that happening where the writer doesn't pick on specifically. He says, loads of people got healed. You see it in Jerusalem. You see it in Iconium. You see it in Samaria. You see it in Ephesus. And you see it in Malta. These sort of widespread healings on certain occasions. And obviously, we add to that the individual healings, like the one we see today, that we get as well. And this should never be over- understated. And uh, this should build our faith. God is not tight-fisted when it comes to mir- the miracles. We see that in the Bible. And uh, something like that subheading, I'd l- I don't know about you, but I'd love to see that sort of thing written over us. That Christians at Church Central, heal many. Okay, that's our paragraph in the book of life. Would we like that? That'd be, that'd be good. We like other things, but that's good. So we love that stuff, and we see it in the book of Acts. However, there is a picture often painted, I'll be honest, I think I've probably contributed to this in the past, of normal Christian life in first century uh, uh, church would have just had miracles all over the place for every believer. So it's like, well, what is it like to be a Christian in the first century where you get up in the morning, you read, read a letter of Paul for a little bit, you pray for a bit, you might go round to your mate's house for an early version of coffee, and of course you do a couple of miracles. That's how it kind of works. And we need to get back to that because that was normal Christianity then. Okay, come back to normal, that's interesting. I think if you push that picture too far, that's not only unhelpful, but it's not actually in the book of Acts at all or anywhere else in the Bible. I think there's two things we've got to notice regarding miracles in the book of Acts that some of us will find this a little bit uncomfortable, but we've got to see them because they're clearly there. One is this, only apostles or prominent church leaders do any healing at all in the book of Acts. I don't know if this is ever, you've ever noticed this before. In fact, there's only three people in the book of Acts who are named who do any healings. Uh, Peter, one of the 12, so an apostle. Paul, who will come a lot to Paul later in the series, but he's like added on, bolted on. He's an apostle, definitely. A guy called Philip's the only slight curveball, but this guy's a prominent leader in the church. I mean, he's a, he's a deacon uh, or the equivalent of a deacon in Acts 6. And in Acts 8, then, he goes and does the heals many bits. It says, Philip, heal many. Lots of miracles. Everyone was amazed. Okay. Uh, John often gets, you've like, seen this passage. I find this funny. It's like, Peter and John go in. Peter and John talk to the guy. It's like John's there leaning over Luke. Like, Put me in. I was there. I was there. But John, we know. I hope he's not judging me for this. We know it was mainly Peter, don't we? Come on, we know that. Okay. But let's be kind to John and let's throw him. That would be four. Okay. <laughs> but that's interesting. Come we could run into all sorts of unhelpful things with conclusions from that, but I think it's interesting. We've got to note that. Secondly, even the apostles who do do miracles do not always do miracles in the book of Acts. Paul, who, as I've said, is one of the main miracle workers in Acts, he says this in 1 Corinthians 1.22. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And that sentence, in a way, could be written over his practice in the book of Acts. 
So for Paul, when he goes to an area and he hangs out with the Jewish people, the people of God, people familiar with the Old Testament and the Yahweh that we sung about, the name of God in the Old Testament, he would go in straight away miracles. Okay? Whether that's in a kind of somewhere outside of Israel, but within the synagogue, which he'd often go to first, or just in Jerusalem and Judea and the areas around where the Jewish, uh, they were all Jewish people. Okay? However, when he goes among Gentiles, it's a completely different story. Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens, which is the uh, center of the Greek world at this time. And what he does not do is wander into the Areopagus, where basically they all argue about big ideas because they were Greek philosophers and all that stuff, and go, guys, fascinating, really interesting, but let's settle this now. Bring me the blind people. Bring them here. I'll sort it out. Okay? Doesn't do it, as far as we know. Luke might have missed that bit out. He might have been asleep, but I don't know. Uh, he doesn't do it. What does he do? He reasons with them over an extended period of time. And according to the text, we, we can see there's no miraculous signs at all done in Athens. Interestingly, uh, at the end of the book of Acts, what we find is Paul. Uh, sorry, guys, it's a spoiler. But if you've not read it yet, probably best to catch up. But anyway, last verse of the book of Acts. You've got Paul in prison in, in Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire. Okay, uh, But he's got a pretty lax deal. And he can just preach the gospel all the time. Brilliant end to the book. Okay, last verse says that boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ at the heart of the Roman Empire. There's lots we could say about that. That's an interesting thing any, for a number of reasons. But that's what happens at Rome. However... It doesn't say he's doing lots of miracles. In fact, all the way when he's arrested and taken to there, to the heart of the Gentile world, he didn't do any miracles at all on the whole way, except for, strangely, on the island of Malta. Who knows? Anyone been to Malta? Yeah, a few of you? Okay. Special. Someone will preach on that a while. We might get to the bottom of that. But apart from Malta, no miracles among the Gentiles at all. That's interesting. Now, just want to be clear what I'm not saying here. I am not arguing with either of these points that only full-time Christians should pray for the sick. I am not arguing that, okay? I'm also not arguing that we should only pray for certain ethnic groups. I'd be slightly right-wing and it's not really the way um, we want to go really at all, okay? Um, now, what, what I'm saying is this. Miracles weren't quite as on tap in the book of Acts as we are often led to believe. For your average Christian in the first century AD, they would have lived with the, the, the reality of miracles and it would, have been, it would have been a step on from where we are today, yet it would not have been as wildly different to where we are today as we sometimes think. That would be my contention looking at Acts. Please go look at it, pray about it, look through it, have a look for yourself. But that seems to be where we're at here. But the question would be this, why do I bother mentioning this at all? On a sermon on miracles, Johnny, why are you doing something that could only ever really dampen our faith and expectation for miracles? Thank you. You are not performing your role <laughs> here. I'll give you, a, I'll tell you why. In fact, I'm going to spend the rest of our time telling you why. The reason I do this is because I think that what we believe in this area is vitally important. And I think there are two extremes that we want to avoid, at, I'd say at all costs, but as much as each other, really. Uh, there's an extreme at this end of not expecting God for any miracles. But actually, there's another extreme of expecting God for miracles all the time. And both of those extremes have potentially disastrous consequences for us. And Acts seems to steer us down the middle with this sort of balance that we get, as the Gospels do as, as well. And it, we would be very wise to take heed of that balance. 
So I'm going to talk about those two extremes and why I think they're a problem, okay? Over this one, again, for this, I think none of you, well, very few of us would disagree on this, but it's still a challenge to us. Expecting no miracles is a problem for us. And uh, just so I know, it's not, I'm not saying if you think, if you have a theological system that denies miracles happen today, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if, perhaps you say, yeah, yeah, miracles happen then, yeah, yeah, miracles happen today, but then in your day-to-day life, you're thinking, I'm not even going to bother praying for that anymore because that, I just don't expect in my life those things to happen. I just don't have a category for that, okay? I'd really want to challenge you if that's the case, or even you're being drawn to that place, because just to be clear, we are all being drawn to that place all the time, and there are times where we pray and we pray and we pray, and what is going on? Last time I preached on miracles, actually, from Elijah and Elisha, I was in that season. I've been praying for a load of things, absolutely nothing. And I asked myself, do I, gen- I believe it, do I genuinely have an expectation for this anymore? I had to guard my heart and watch myself. And I think we need to do the same because the thing about miracles is they're not peripheral to Christianity. They're not on the edge. I know that many of you would be looking for miracles in your life that would be big deals, that you'd have things going on that you think, please God, please come in and fix this situation. And it's there's pain, there's longing, there's desperation because it's not a small thing. I'd say, while I agree it's not a small thing, miracles aren't just about those things. They're not just about whether we see uh, more healings for people who are sick. No, no, they're actually integral to the entire Christian message. The Christian message is the message of God who broke into our world and rerouted the course of humanity. That is a pretty significant miracle. And what we believe as Christians is not just we look back on that like a museum piece, but that he keeps doing little versions of that in our lives all the time. That's what Christianity is. He's alive. He does this stuff today. I think Peter sums this up brilliantly in Acts 3. I, t- I told you I'd get to the actual passage at some point. You know. But in, uh, in the passage we saw, we saw this miracle, and the crowds come along, and they recognize the guy, and they go, what's going on? And Peter asks this question. He says, why are you so surprised? <laughs> The crippled guy just got healed, Peter. You know, come on. <laughs> now, I think what he means that by that was uh, Jesus had been doing a load of miracles just a couple of months before. So it's like they, they hadn't quite cottoned on. But then he follows that with this incredible question. Oh, this is an amazing way to start your talk. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? That's what he says. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Why does he ask that question? It's a very specific question. Well, he realized this. He realized that for his people who were listening, people who believed in God, you know, these are Jewish people, they only had two categories for things. That things happen because of our human ability and as a reward for good things that we've done. Everything is a result of our power and godliness. You know what? When we say we believe in miracles, what we are saying is that there is an amazing reality that those are not the only two factors at play in the world. There is more going on than results of our power and our godliness. Thank God for that. I mean, miracles speak of hope, don't they? Miracles speak of a hope that's built on more than just what I or you can actually achieve with our ability or our talents or our skill. And looking around, you go, I can see the skill and talent in this room. You know, you know it's over-oring. I see, I see politicians. I see doctors. I see teachers, headmasters. I see all sorts, all of us, you know. But if it was just that, guys, what, what kind of thing are we planning? We've got some big tasks ahead of us as Christians. Now, miracles speak of hope beyond ourselves. Miracles speak of grace. I don't know if you ever thought of this before. You don't earn miracles. 
Some of, uh, if you've trained to be in the medical profession, more at the south side, I guess, you give like 10 years or so more to train to kind of help people get better. You get some healing advantages comes into town. I've never even been to university. He just puts a hand on someone, suddenly healed. They never, I wonder if I, doctors, I'll ask some people this, do you ever get a bit annoyed? Like, I had to go through 10 years of medical school for this. It's unearned. Miracles are unearned. You're only training for miracles. You don't need to do a certain number of good things to get your miracle. There'll be people here thinking, I know why God's not healed me, it's because I'm not good enough. No, there's no record of that in the Bible at all. Miracles speak of grace. They speak of the very core of Christianity. If we stop expecting miracles, all we are left with is our power and our godliness. I would argue that extreme is a problem, okay? It's a problem. So let's wander over here, shall we? Another extreme. Some of you are wondering, I don't see how this could be a problem. But what about expecting miracles all the time? I, I honestly think there's almost an equal problem here because it opens up a whole load of different difficulties. First thing, very simply, if we expect God to do more than he will actually do in this area, of course there's a danger of disappointment and disillusionment. That's, of course, and that on its own is quite significant and many of us would have been probably battled through that in our time and probably battling through that now. But I'd say there's a worse danger, particularly in the cultural climate we find ourselves in now. I'm speaking honestly to you guys. My main worry in this area is that an overemphasis on miracles could lead us to fall into an Amazon Now approach to Christianity. I wonder if anyone can work out what I mean. I'll explain myself. But an Amazon Now approach to Christianity. Whereby basically, we expect God to work according to the demands of our culture. And how does our culture want it done? Now. Instantly. We get it done straight away. And so we look at our spiritual growth, for example, and we say, I'm here, and I want to be over there. Okay? I know it's not how it should be. I want to be there in all sorts of ways, my character, all of those things. How do I get there? I know what it is. Now. What a miracle, God. Get me there. I want my breakthrough. Breakthrough in this area of my life, and get me there. Amazon now Christianity. I don't see in the Bible. About church. We say, our church is here, and uh, we want to be there. We clearly understand there's some weaknesses, there's some things here. How do we get there? Now, want my miracle, want my breakthrough. God, that's how we get there. We wake up one day and everything's different. Oh, God, thank you so much. That'd be a great prayer meeting we have. We thank him for completely sorting out all of our lives in a moment, okay? Amazon, now Christianity. What about our whole society around us? What about the state of our nation? Do you watch the news with this sort of, in the back of your head, think, yes, bad, it's getting worse, getting worse, but you know what, any day now, revival. It's all going to turn around in a moment. I want to challenge you. I wonder if you've fallen for Amazon, now Christianity. That doesn't seem to be how God does things in his plan. And the danger there is if we go for that way, it could and probably will inevitably lead to an unwillingness to commit ourselves to working for those things with any sense of perseverance at all. I'll give an example from something that's slightly niche that I'm involved in. But it, I think this will give you the point of what I mean, okay? So, yeah, you'll think, where are we going? But I'll be back there in a minute, okay? Me and Jebra, as many of you will know, Jebra's my wife, uh, for those who don't know, but we're involved, uh, we run something called Sputnik. And Sputnik is an, a network of artists that's based in our family of churches in Catalyst, okay? Many of you know that, Sputnik art, Johnny art, writing, whatever, rapping, whatever it is. Okay. What many of you might not know is why we put time into this and why we think this is important, Okay. We are not involved in Sputnik 
because we would like to see more nice pictures, nice stories, and nice songs. Although, to use the word I've used three times in that sentence, that would be nice, okay? But it's not worth your life, is it, really? Why I want to give my life to this stuff, and, and many uh, would agree, and the ch- church here and Catholics would be resourcing this a lot, is that we want to see Christians excelling in the arts more in our culture, and through that artistic excellence, regain a voice into the heart of our culture to structurally change the whole form of ideas in our nation. That's what we're interested in. Bit, bit grand, isn't it? <laughs> Because whatever you think of the arts here, maybe you go to watch the ballet and the opera. Maybe you think, no way, I'm happy with Gogglebox, thank you very much. Okay, wherever you are on those sides of the spectrum, it's pretty indisputable that when it comes to culture, to the culture we live in, that the arts have a very important voice in shaping our culture. I know it's intangible, I know it's, you can't really measure it, but basically the subconscious values that kind of are around in the ether, they sneak in through the TV shows and through the movies and through the books and through the music and that is how art works it has this important uh, way of doing things now i think as christians we're called to be available to god uh, to be able to influence things whatever part of culture we find ourselves in whatever job uh, we find ourselves in but i think there's something special about the arts that we've we've been really struck by we want to push forward in this area because i think christians over the last however many generations have moved away from this area and therefore we've lost a voice into culture in this way and we want to change things so that basically it our culture is more of a fertile soil for the gospel so that basically what you listen to and read and all those things don't just harden you against Christianity but actually open up more opportunities for people to become Christians that's what we're involved in but here's the deal trying to get involved in altering the structure of a culture from the inside well, well that's a massive operation okay that will take a lot of time that will take a lot of money that's something that, uh, me and Gemma are quite clear on this. We, we, we wanna, I think this is something to give up my life to uh, in, in one way or another. I'd like to keep working on this. And we know by the end of our lives, the best case scenario is we look back and we see some change somewhere. Okay, probably we don't see a lot and we have to pass it on. It's tricky, it's difficult, you know. Like Hebrews, it says, isn't it? They, they went in faith for something that they didn't even see when they got there. We need goals like that, long-term goals. And I'm delighted that uh, Catalyst, the family of churches, uh, have been so willing to think this through and kind of practically look at what this might look like. However, on the flip side of that, that's an unusual thing. It's really unusual. And in churches I've brushed shoulders with in the past, there's been very little uh, hunger for such long-term projects that would sus- be sustained so many resources in that way. And there's many reasons for that in the form of the arts, because the arts is quite controversial. But one of the main reasons is this, and I've mentioned it already. They'd say this, well, you want to change culture, you want to change society. Yeah, we, we know how that works, isn't it? Revival. Revival will come. That's what will happen. Why bother giving all these resources, all this time, all this effort, when just any day now, and I sense it, I feel it in the wind, uh, Jesus is going to break in a new way. Just glossary moment here. Revival would be, uh, what we mean by that word, would be a time where God breaks in in a new way. Uh, He would grip hold of Christians in lots of different churches, usually in a geographical location, kind of giving them a new passion for Jesus. And like I said before, it seems almost overnight, um, uh, would lots of people suddenly getting saved in the community, lots of miracles. And you know what? Many cases in England where that's happened in the past. And do I pray for that? 
Yeah, you're too right, I do. <laughs> we need to see it. We need a communal miracle like that. That's really important. And I'd encourage you if, you, if that's new to you, you know what, pray for that stuff. Study the revivals of the past. However, while we pray, we give ourselves for the long haul. And as we pray, we pray in such a way that doesn't excuse ourselves from giving our lives and taking up our cross and following him and saying, even if you don't break in, Lord, I'm giving myself for this. Yeah, I expect God to break in at times. I expect God to speed things up at times. I've seen that stuff in different ways already. But in a sense, I say this cautiously, but I think this is a fair place where I'm at. I don't bank on it. We go out in the strength and the power of the Spirit and we give our lives. Not just a day. You know, he hasn't done anything. We'll give up on that. Not just a week. Not just a month. Not just a year. We give our lives for the kingdom. So let's apply this then as we close. I want to ask you, which extreme are you closest to? Maybe some of you would say you're in practice, whatever your theology, you're over here at the moment in your expectation. You've lost faith for God breaking through in any way, miraculously, healing-wise, uh, and, uh, and a load of other things as well. Just unusual kind of rerouting of circumstances. Say, no, that's not how it works. It all just pans out, doesn't it? And I'll come to live with that. Some of you, you've been disappointed. Some of you have stepped out in this area before, and you've walked away with egg on your face. You might have looked very silly. You might have looked away with so many questions. Why, why didn't he break in? Maybe it's much more personal to you. Maybe it was that person. I remember time praying for someone very dear to me. So they lay in their hospital bed praying, God, why, why not? Like, you can heal. They're dying. What is this? And hearing the news, be later, now they've gone. What do you do with that? Well, you've got to bring it back to God. But what we try and encourage you not to do is let it seep into your spirit and then say, right, I'm shutting this off now. This isn't happening anymore. The Holy Spirit needs to help us. I'd love to pray in a minute. The Holy Spirit would warm us to those things. But I'd encourage you to be challenged and encouraged today. You know what? If we stop expecting God for miracles, we don't just get rid of a few healings here and there. We get rid of the whole thing. Because God is by nature a God of miracles. That's the only Christian God that there could be and that there is. And if he can save you by breaking into history and rerouting the whole of history and then breaking into your life in grace and giving you hope at a particular moment in time and continuing to do that day in, day out. So you wake up each day going, I'm following him and I'm not going with the majority of thought in the world around me. If he can do that, he can definitely heal the sick today. And he can definitely fix your marriage today. And he can definitely save your friend today. That's the God we worship. Take heart, trust God again, and pray again for miracles. I know that's not easy for some of you. I'd really encourage you. I'll have to pray in a minute for that. But maybe you're on this side, actually. And uh, if you're being honest, there are areas in your life where you're holding out for a miracle. But actually, you know that God's telling you, There are things to learn in this situation and I want you to dig in for the long haul. You could be praying for all sorts of different areas and I don't want to lessen these. As I said before, these are serious things. Praying for your health, for your marriage, for your kids, for your work situation, for change in your whole life situation. You could be praying for any number of those things and pleading with God, that's your main prayer. Give me a miracle breakthrough. I'm going to say two things to you as we close. Firstly, please keep praying. And while you keep praying, can you get us involved? We'd love to join you in praying for that stuff. And we would love to celebrate when God breaks in, you know. 
We'd love to do that. Keep praying. But secondly, please understand this. Even if God does break through miraculously in the way you're praying for, he will never use a miracle to short-circuit his normal call for you as a Christian. And that is to dig deep in the power of the Spirit, to stay righteous, to hold fast to him and commit to remain faithful whether he breaks it or not. In Colossians 1 verse 11, it's my verse that stuck for me from the Colossians series most. Paul has this amazing prayer and he prays this. He says, uh, may you be filled with, or may you be strengthened, sorry, with all power according to God's glorious might. And so you think, yes, what's coming out now is miracles, power and might, brilliant. But he doesn't talk about doing miracles. He says, power and might for what? For all endurance and patience with joy. Whatever you need God's power for today, you need God's power for that more. Is how I would read the Bible. Oh, thanks, Johnny. That endurance and patience. That doesn't sound very good, does it? Now look at the last two words. With joy. With joy. God's got joy for us. And he's designed the world in such a way that we get joy as we push through so often. Yes, he helps. Yes, he comes in. But it's endurance and patience with joy. Actually, if God was to give just give you miracle, 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 and move all the obstacles out your way and just walk straight through, you know what? I think there'd be no joy in that. It's hard for us to hear, but this is how God's made it for us. And I want to encourage you, there is genuine joy here. And you know what? We do it expecting every now and again just to go, whoa, God, you broke through again. 